It's the 28th of October, 2022. This is a Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. Happy to be with you today. A story of more drug-induced lupus, more lupus nephritis, and longer effects of the Shing- the Shingrix vaccine. I-, I found all these things surprising this week uh, and things that we covered on Room Now. I think the big news of the week actually occurred one week ago on the 21st of October when we, after we published, we got news that the FDA uh, informed AbbVie that their JAK inhibitor, selective JAK1 inhibitor, upadacitinib, also called Rinvoke, received FDA approval for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. That approval is based on the results of a large phase Three study called the Select Axis 2 study. This now makes upadacitinib one of, I think, four drugs approved for a non-radiographic axial spa. That would include sertilizumab, secukinumab, ixekizumab, and now the JAK inhibitor, upadacitinib, for non-radiographic axial spa. It has all the same uh, dosing uh, warnings. Nothing new was discovered in that Select Axis 2 study. This now becomes uh, uh, one of many approvals for upadacitinib that include rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, eczema, and ulcerative colitis. A long-term um, serial analysis of patients with ankylosing spondylitis. It's called the SOAS study, P-S-O-A-S. Um, they published results of a curious finding, and I'm sure you've seen this. Patients with ankylosing spondylitis who have clear-cut SI disease, sacroiliitis, if not sacroiliac fusion, but they never ascend, meaning the ankylosis never goes upwards as it is tends to do in this progressive inflammatory disorder. So in their study of 340 patients, 350 patients with long-standing AS and SI changes, they found a total of 23 patients in that total cohort who lacked lumbar syndesmophytes, meaning they showed no evidence of fusion of lower lumbar and other spinal segments. Who are these people? And their analysis says it was more likely to occur in women with uh, uh, spondylitis and those who had an, a younger age of onset. All of them were B27, and you know we certainly know that B27 is associated with spinal disease, but maybe it's only associated with sacroiliitis and not necessarily spinal fusion. An interesting, study, an interesting result from the SOAS study. We had two reports about effects of COVID on our patients. One was an analysis of 78 patients with fibromyalgia in whom they had pre-COVID and post-COVID assessments using the fibromyalgia impact questionnaire, the FIQR. And they uh, also you know, did other assessments on these patients. And while they noted that their fibromyalgia patients, like all of our patients, had some effect of COVID on them, at least as far as FIQR, a sort of standardized assessment of fibromyalgia activity, there was no statistically significant changes. So overall in that cohort, they found that 65% had no change, no, no improvement, nor any deterioration, therefore screwing up any statistical cohort differences here, at least pre and post 
cohorts. You know, and, and is that surprising? Because yeah, obviously we do have data on our other rheumatic disease patients, as I'm about to show you in the next paper, um, that says some of our patients got worse during COVID. And my interpretation of this is I'm, I like it on the rare event when my fibromyalgia patients get better. The problem is most of them visit to visit tend to have, you know, fairly moderate to high pain levels and fatigue levels. And they, they, at least as far as how they're going to be classified on things like the hack score and pain scores and global assessments, uh, you know, you don't, you rarely see like dramatic improvements, um, which is why fibromyalgia is, is difficult and frustrating for patients um, no less the doctors who care for those patients. Another larger study of 1,900 rheumatic disease patients who um, obviously had COVID, and in this cohort, 42% had RA, 15% had SLE, half had comorbidities. The outcomes were not good, of course. Now, this might be some selective reporting. This is a SAR, I don't know, COVID registry Um a quarter of them, 28% were hospitalized. 8% overall went to the ICU. 4% died from COVID. Poor COVID outcomes, including hospitalizations, ICU, and death, was seen with increasing age, more so in males, with high disease activity, those on steroids, and those on rituximab, and those with uh, more than one comorbidity. The story isn't really surprising. The numbers are better than, you know, what you might expect. I've always said, and my experience during COVID was, my patients with inflammatory arthritis who did really, really well because they're all well-controlled. Overall, all my patients who were well-controlled on medicine did very, very well. People got into trouble were people with autoimmune disease and people with high disease activity and then also steroids and rituximab. And we know about comorbidity and age being risk factors. So our patients do fall in line with what's been reported out there as risk factors for poor outcomes. Uh, this study from Mexico, I believe, was surprising. It'll be surprising for you, not for me. Uh, and basically, the headline here is TNF inhibitors do not increase cancer risk. Let me say that again. TNF inhibitors do not increase cancer risk. If I get questions about how do I manage a patient, I can tell you that about a third of them are what do I do when my patient has cancer. I want to remind you, the ACR guidelines say if your patient has a solid tumor, lung cancer, prostate cancer, you know, any kind of solid tumor, ovarian, it doesn't really matter, the presence of the cancer has no, no impact on a decision. Use biologics, use DMARs, use combinations, use whatever you want because there's no um, impact of biologics. It gets a little more dicey if you consider hematologic malignancies, where, again, the risk of uh, what happens in, uh, is really determined by RA and not so much the therapies, and that's always been my position. This study of 4,600 RA patients, um, half of whom took a, received a TNF inhibitor and half were, uh, receiving, uh, were matched for receiving a non-TNF um, non-biologic DMART. And overall, the patients treated with TNF inhibitors had lower cancer risk than the DMART patients. Um, incidence rates were 6.5 versus 15.6, almost you know 60% lower, and that's an incidence rate of 6.5 per um, 1,000 patient years. They had, if you look at individual cancers, they had significantly lower risk of GI cancers, of 57% lower risk, breast cancer, an 85% lower risk, GU cancers, a 78% lower risk. Again, all those are um, 
solid tumors. Um, they didn't have good data in there about hematologic malignancies. We'll leave that for another story. But again, you should have some comfort when treating your patients when they have these uh, solid uh, tumor malignancies. Another safety um, pearl comes from the WHO safety database called Vigibase. And Vigibase did an analysis of 625 patients who had drug-induced lupus, um, mostly female. Uh, 59 years of age was the mean age. Um, and um, half of them suspected that the PPI was the main culprit. In fact, that was the main culprit with um, two different databases, the Vigibase and another French safety database of 800,000 patients. They both identified either omeprazole or lansoprazole, I think, as the cause for the drug-induced lupus. Um, again, they most of them presented with cutaneous lupus uh, manifestations, most of those being subacute cutaneous, 50 plus percent, uh, 5% being dis discoid lupus. So again, the profile of drug-induced lupus has changed over the years and PPIs and chronic PPI use uh, are a major culprit. The Shingrix vaccine, as you know, replaced the Zostavax, the live virus vaccine. Shingrix, the, in, the inactive vaccine, two shots should be done in all your patients over 60 who have rheumatic disease or patients going on JAK inhibitors, I think at any age, that's my opinion. But as you know, the Shingrix was approved a number of years ago, I want to say 2017, yeah, um, based on the Zoe 50 when you give it to people over the age of 50, and the Zoe 70, give it to people over the age of 70. And that study showed, I think, in, um, uh, immediately a four-year beneficial effect, really high protective levels of over 90%, regardless of one's age, meaning it worked just as well in the elderly than as it did in the young, young people. From those studies, um, there was overall a six-year protective effect, and now long-term extensions of those studies show that the protective effect, which is 91 to 97% over 70, over 50, um, is now at 9.6 years after getting the Shingrix vaccine, protective effect is 81.6 years in both cohorts who are receiving the drug in a long-term open-label study. Again, no further drug was given. They were just given that one shot but followed longitudinally. This isn't comforting because often the question is, when do I do it again? And you need this kind of data. So I would say 10 years before you even discuss it. That's going to be a good number for all of you. Um Thyroid disease and RA. If you look at studies of autoimmunity and in, in the population and autoimmunity conditions that run together, you always see a lot of RA. You always see a lot of thyroid disease. As you know, most of that is Hashimoto's thyroiditis and hypothyroid patients with or without uh, thyroid peroxidase antibodies. This cohort study of 250 RA patients compared them to 250 non-inflammatory rheumatic controls, and they looked at um, the presence of thyroid disease. Um, in RA compared to controls. And guess what? RA patients tend to have more thyroid dysfunction, about twofold higher risk. The um, risk of abnormal LFTs was 34% versus 19%. Um, they also had a higher rate of overt hypothyroidism, anti-TPO antibodies, and autoimmune thyroid disease as they define in the paper. So is it worth checking TFTs in your patient? Probably is. I want to say that checking TFTs and TSH in people with aches and pains, gigantic waste of time. I still do it. I've done it from, since day one of my fellowship. And the yield on that has been about like, you know, one and a half patients 
of the 9 million patients I've seen in the last 40 years. Now, I'm exaggerating, of course, but and you might want to argue with me, but it really is a low-yield um, um, diagnostic venture as to maybe thyroid is the cause for their aches and pains. It almost never is. But I'm saying here, RA patients, patients with established autoimmune disease, checking thyroid function um, once or twice might not be a bad idea. Um, all good ideas, we seem to think, come from the Mayo Clinic, where they have that fabulous Olmstead County database. A Mayo Clinic published paper looks at um, the risk of developing RA based on lifestyle factors. Uh, they actually uh, looked at patients from Olmstead County and also from five surrounding counties. And they, oh, no, 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 no. This is not, um, this, uh, that's the next one. I'm talking about lupus nephritis. That's coming from Olmsted County. This is the Mayo Clinic Biobank that showed that the incident, incident RA was, um, the risk was lower in those who either, let's see now, had um, three to five servings of high-fat foods or vegetables lowered their risk. That's good news. Moreover, an increased risk was seen in people who did physical work activity. Um, and that's a, a threefold higher risk. Uh, and, you know, we have data from, especially psoriatic arthritis, that trauma and work are risk factors for developing disease. Interesting data from Mayo. Um, a meta-analysis of emergency department use of opioids for musculoskeletal pain looked at 42 papers, over 6,000 patients, and found that short-term benefits of Emergency department dispense opioids were statistically, but not clinically, better than placebo or Tylenol, and certainly not better than nonsteroidals. The safety of opioids versus these choices really remains uncertain given the quality of the studies. I bring this paper up because I, I still think this is a gigantic unmet need. Managing patients uh, with musculoskeletal pain uh, of various etiologies and, you know, the no-no that is opioids and all things opioids. What are you going to do about that? I mean, are, are you going to have to go the way of marijuana and CBD where your best advice comes from some guy named Paco behind the counter? I think I've used that joke before, but it's true. I mean, we really don't have great guidance on how to use those drugs. Uh, and I still think we're floundering uh, in whether to use acetaminophen um, which I am a big proponent of, um, non-steroidals, judicious use, I'm a proponent of. Uh, and I think tramadol is, a, is an effective drug. But, you know, we've reported here about the potential dangers of tramadol and gabapentin and, and whatnot. So, again, managing pain has become really, really difficult for rheumatologists. As one who does a lot of programming, like, for instance, upcoming Room Now Live, March 19th and 20th, hope you're going to be there. It's going to be a fabulous meeting. I'm looking for great speakers on pain, and I really have a hard time finding them. Um, predictors of in, uh, infection in lupus. Uh, a nice study from Spain, I think this was. Um, yes, um, showed that um, the SIE rate with lupus was 3.8 per 100 years, and that um, the biggest risk factor for developing a serious infection in lupus was having had a prior serious infection. I think I said this before, and I've learned this from infectious disease specialists, you know, the, the world leaders in that area say that once you've had an SIE, doesn't matter who you are, 
regular person, you know, cancer person, arthritis person, if you had an SIE, pneumonia, meningitis, septic arthritis, you're more likely to get it a second time. And if you get it the second time, you're more likely to die from it. That seems to be true here in lupus. Another interesting study, this one's from Spain, uh, that looked at um, hospital um, admissions records uh, and looked at a total of over 18,000 lupus patients who were hospitalized over, I'm not sure what the time frame is, a fairly long time frame. Uh, And they showed that um, in those patients who were hospitalized, the main reason for hospitalization was was, um, disease activity in 19% and suspected infection in 15%. So despite they admitted more admissions for lupus stuff um, and worrying about infection. The cause of death in these hospitalized patients was attributed to infection in 25%, but only 6% of the deaths in lupus patients hospitalized in Spain were due to lupus activity and lupus-related outcomes. That's really, again, important. And I, 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 I'm going to give you the teaching point I've always said A lupus patient gets admitted to the hospital. They're going to be in the hospital for a medical problem, not a lupus problem. Now, it could be a medical problem due to their drugs, like especially steroids and infection. But, you know, again, hypertension and lupus is likely to be hypertension and not necessarily, you know, their kidneys are squeezing, you know, their blood vessels into hypertension. That certainly does happen. But you got to think regular medical problems before you start jumping to all the lupus um, solutions. The population risk of an infection-related death in Spain is only 8%. What was interesting about this study, where the risk of um, of dying from infection was 25% lupus patients, um, and only 6% from just lupus activity, and 8% for non-lupus patients dying from infection. The risk of dying from a lupus infection got higher in younger people. So under age 20, it was 40%. Versus a population risk of 3%. Or age 29 to 39, 33% versus 4%. So this is much more impactful in the very young lupus patient, more so than the middle-aged or older patients, where it was about the same number I said at the start of this. Um, Lastly, we have a report from the Mayo Clinic. Again, this is from Olmstead County and five surrounding counties. And they um, followed patients over uh, 1976 to 2018. That's like, what, 120 years. Overall, they identified 76 patients with lupus nephritis. 70% were, were, were white, Caucasian. The mean age uh, of lupus nephritis is 38 years old. And while the annual incidence of lupus nephritis was 1 per 100,000, um, this went up almost every decade, substantially. And it was highest in the age group of 30 to 39. Um, at 10 years... Uh, after having a diagnosis of lupus nephritis, survival was 70%, meaning mortality was 30%. And 13% of these patients develop end-stage renal disease. I think that's good um, numbers to take forward in your practice. That's it for this week. We hope you like the podcast. Please give us a good rating. Watch for our coverage of ACR 2022, ACR Convergence. You're going to like it. Lots of real-time podcasts, real-time videos, real-time recaps. We'll be there for you. We'll see you.